I invite you to take your Bibles once again and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, verse 28. Matthew chapter 28. As you know, Christianity is made up of many what we would call doctrines. Now, a doctrine, for you kids, may oftentimes simply be referring to a teaching from the Bible, which we believe, which we hold to. It is a teaching from God's Word that His true church will hold to tenaciously and uphold before others in our walk with Him. Now, there are many doctrines and many that some good men sometimes differ on. Areas where we can understand when someone interprets it perhaps a little differently than we do or that others do. For instance, uh, many of the Reformers and in the 1689 Confession of Faith they wrote that the Pope is the Antichrist, that they consider the Pope to be the Antichrist. Now, I personally very much understand what they were talking about. Having come from the Church of Rome myself, I understand what they're saying and why. However, others that I've met over the years have said, that just can't be, and they don't want to believe that. They don't like that, that doctrine or that teaching that came from various scriptures. And we don't shed blood over something like that. Okay, I understand you don't believe that the Pope is the Antichrist. Others do. And there are other places such as good men who have soteriology that is spot on. And by soteriology we're talking about the doctrine of salvation how you are saved, and they go through the Scripture, and they understand, and they lay it out very well. They do it according to the Scriptures, and they're spot on in their soteriology. Yet these same men hold to the false teachings of J.N. Darby and dispensationalism. That we don't discount their faith or their ministries because they might not agree that dispensationalism is wrong. Good men sometimes differ on such doctrines as those. However, there are what we call key or indispensable teachings from the doctrine, which if, from the Bible, which if you do not hold to, if you do not agree with, if you do not believe, You are simply not a Christian. We gain from the Bible such doctrines as the virgin birth, that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. And some people discount that. Well, what what difference does that make? It is indispensable in our faith. For if Jesus Christ was not born of a virgin, he is tainted with Adam's sin and therefore is a sinner and unable to be a spotless, sinless sacrifice for our sins. 
So the virgin birth is indispensable to being a Christian. You must believe it, or else, whatever else you may say, you are not a Christian or a Christian church. So too are such things that we hold to and believe that our Christian and Christians have to believe them. Such things as the deity of Christ. If you do not believe that Christ was the divine Son of God, whatever else you may say or believe, you cannot be in a Christian church or you are not a Christian. Christ was the divine Son of God, is the divine Son of God. And to deny that is to deny Christianity as the Bible portrays it. Now, you could say you're Christian, and many do. That's what they say. Oh, we're Christians, we're Christians, but they deny the deity of Christ. So they say they're Christians, but on the authority of the Word of God, they are not. Such men as Glenn Beck or Mitt Romney, people who deny the deity of Christ, no matter how nice they look, no matter how often they say that we're Christians, they are not. For they deny the Word of God and what it says about His Son. Also, if they deny such things as the miracles of Christ, if they deny such things as the resurrection, the bodily death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, in fact, the bodily incarnation of Christ. If they deny these things, whatever else they may say, they are not Christians. These are indispensable, vital, foundational to Christianity and the Christian church. Today, in our study, our series, which we have called The Ongoing Work of the Resurrected Savior, that is, what Jesus taught and did following His resurrection, but prior to His ascension to heaven, we come to actually two of those key doctrines. One we've already assumed, but one we're going to begin to look at more fully. And I ask you again to look here in this text to what our Lord says in verse 19. We've already talked about His appearance on the shore from John 20. His appearance is as reported by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And here, in His appearance on the mount, we've seen His instructions to the church regarding His sovereignty, His instructions to an evangelizing church, His instructions to a baptizing church, and then last Lord's Day, we talked about His instructions regarding a family church. I remind you of what we talked about last Lord's Day in this passage where He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The phrase in the name is Eisto Anome. 
and it actually could be translated into the name. And so we spent just a little bit last week looking at the fact that when you are saved, baptized into the church, you become a member of the family of God. When one is saved, he's not left an orphan. He's brought into the family of God, a family member. So we are baptized into the name of God. And the name that we take is Christian. It identifies us with our Savior. It identifies us with our God. Now with that in mind, we move on today to consider the next area brought up in this text. One of those key doctrines. And I said there's two that we're looking at, and I'll mention that in a moment. But we come to see these doctrines. And the first one is one that we are assuming that we've mentioned, but I don't want us to miss or to forget. And that is the bodily resurrection of Christ. Because that's what has happened. And that's why I began by reading from verse 1 in this chapter. That Jesus was dead, was buried, was in the tomb, and on the third day, He rose again. His body was raised from the grave. He was raised from the dead. And now, here He is, right before the disciples. So, whatever else we learn from this, don't miss the fact that this is speaking of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. He's standing right here in front of the disciples. Look at verse 16. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. Now remember, we talked about that a little bit and saw that that may well have been the place where that 500 plus saw him at one time. Because this was a designated place where Jesus said that he was going to meet with the disciples. And a lot of people besides the disciples or the apostles would wanted to have been there. So this may well have been that occasion. But then he comes up to the disciples in verse 18 specifically, and it spoke to them and tells them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so what do you think they're thinking? As he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. He's in charge of the universe. He's in charge of the earth. He's in charge of everyone on the earth. And what do you think they're thinking? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if I believe that. Here's Jesus who was just raised from the dead standing right in front of them. How could they deny it? He's alive from the dead. Everything that he taught them was true. Everything that he said came to pass. I have all authority. I am in charge of heaven and earth. And they knew it was true. In light of that, go and teach others and make disciples. And baptize them. So the first thing we see in the text is indeed the risen Savior. The Christ's body was indeed raised from the dead. And people, if you don't believe that, you are denying the word of God and you are not saved. 
If your church doesn't believe that, they are denying the word of God and it is not a Christian church. The Christian church believes in the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. But now the other area here in this appearance that gives us this key, indisputable, undeniable, foundational doctrine is what Jesus then goes on to teach regarding God. And so we have here from this, as he speaks to his apostles and to you and to me, his instructions to a Trinitarian church. His instructions to an evangelizing church, a baptizing church, a family church, a Trinitarian church. And of course we have then before us the doctrine of the Trinity. I've got to say that I really felt like I might put this on hold and just take it up at a later date as a completely different series. And yet here it is, right before us, right in the text. It's part of what Jesus taught in His appearance to the disciples here. So I thought, this is a, we just deal with it now. This may not be an exhaustive series on the Trinity, but it will be a rather in-depth series on the Trinity. So what we are going to have is a series within the series. And we begin today by looking at the Trinity as He speaks to His people and instructs them to be a church that believes in the Trinity. And to begin our series within a series, we don't have to go any farther than this text right here to set the stage for what we would call the reality and the fact that there is one God. There is one God. We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God. And in the coming weeks, we will see some of the false ideas and some of the false teachings that men have brought forth, and many very common even in our current day. That there are all kinds of untruths about the Trinity sweeping the church. And many that you might think are Christians are not Christians because they deny the Trinity. And we will touch on some of those. But what I am mostly interested in is what we understand from the Scriptures as how this one God is one, but reveals Himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons. But we're going to begin with the fact that there is one God, and to see this, we need to go no further than the text right before us, as we pick up where we left off last week, where Jesus is speaking regarding baptizing them in the name. Now, last week we talked about this as being baptized into the family, part of the family name. But the fact is, when you open up a text of Scripture and deal 
with each applicable word. That is, we don't deal with every single word, but we take the main text and the main words within the text and you begin to deal with it and unravel it and expound it and open up and see what it understands, you often find that many times there is a word or a phrase or a part of a text that is like a diamond. It has many facets, many sides, and they all shine brightly, and they're all beautiful, and they all mean something special and something wonderful. So last week we looked at this phrase, baptize them in the name. But today we're going to pick up from this same spot and see another side of that phrase. Another aspect of that phrase that Jesus uses to say in the name. And that is this. And you see it clearly when you see it from the text. If you would follow with me again. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name. And what we see right away is that the word is singular. He does not say baptizing them in the names. The names of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is in to the name, singular, one. So the teaching of our Lord Jesus is clear right from the beginning. It is one name, one God. Baptize them into the name. Only after he says into the name, does he then go on to mention Father Son, and Holy Spirit. But what he says from this text is clear. There is one God. One God. And you've got to understand, here is the Son of God standing before the disciples saying, there is one God. Baptize them in the name. One God, one name, one God. There is only one God. And what I want for us to see now is how God presents himself to be one God in some other passages that we find in the Bible to make sure that we support what we're saying. I don't want you to just, I am not the kind of pastor or preacher who says, you know what, that's what the Bible says. I want you to see it with your own eyes. Turn with me, if you would, please, to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4, as we're going to look at some common language used in the Bible to describe God as being the one and only God. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And if you would, please, look down to verse 35. And again, remember what's going on. This is, of course, one of the books of Moses. How did Moses get most of 
his revelation. How did Moses know all these things he writes about, as he wrote about in Genesis 1 and creation? How did Moses get all this? Remember, Moses spoke with God as man speaks with man. Remember how Moses would speak with God and meet with God and his face was so bright and shining that he had to put a veil over his face? Because he met with God as man meets with man. And God taught him. God taught him so much of what he wrote and that we have now in what we call the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. And so remember that. As he says in verse 35, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, Jehovah, He is God. There is no other besides Him. He is God, and there is no other besides Him. Not, there is no other besides them. No other besides Him. There is one God, and there is no other God. People, you've got to understand that when we come to worship, you will often hear us pray and ask that we would have a sense of awe and reverence because we come into the presence of the living God. There's no other God. There is only one who is the eternal, all-powerful God. There is only one who is the self-existent God. The self-sufficient God who needs nothing or no one. He is all-sufficient, all-powerful God. He alone is the God who speaks and it comes to pass. He alone is the God who brings nations up and brings kings down. He is sovereign. He is in control, just as Jesus said as he stood before the disciples. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's God. Tuck that away from when we deal with Jesus as the Son of God, the second person. But here we have in the scriptures that there is only one God He alone is God. There is no other besides Him. Don't have idols. Don't have small gods in your life. There's only one. One God. Now look down in this same passage, if you would please, to verse 39. Know therefore today... And take it to your heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above and on the earth below, there is no other. Can you imagine God in His splendor and in His glory as He taught the nation of Israel? And we were studying some of these things this morning in the adult class. As God 
taught the nation of Israel all these things about himself. And they were so quick to turn their backs on him. And so quick to follow after false gods to the point that they were sacrificing their own children to false pagan gods. There is one God. Only one God. Our God. The God of the Bible. And He is one. Now I want to turn to one of the most key passages in this regards. If you would, please look over to Deuteronomy. And this time, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we're going to deal with a text text that kind of has its own name. It's called the Shema, or the Shema. And this comes to us beginning in verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it is a key passage in understanding who God is. Verse 4 reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Remember what I said a few moments ago about God teaching to Moses these truths for us to have. And here he says, Hear, O Israel. That's God. Listen to me. Listen to what I'm telling you. It is like when Jesus would preface a statement by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you. Or amen, amen, I say to you. God says, listen, O Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God. And that God is one. The Lord Jehovah, Jehovah is one. Yahweh is one. For my professor who hated the word Jehovah. Yahweh, he said it should be. Yahweh is one. Jehovah is one. We worship God and He is one God. Not three. One God. Now he goes on to say, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the frontals of your forehead and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is important stuff. Don't forget it. Don't miss it. Don't forget it. Don't even stop saying it. The godly Israelite would say this passage at least two times a day. When you lie down and when you rise up. At least. And then when you're on the way. They would teach it to their children. This was the first text that a godly Jewish home would teach to their children. 
They would teach it to their children and they would teach it to their families day after day, time after time. This was the passage that the godly Israelite wanted on his lips when he died. He wanted to be reciting the Shema. He wanted to be reciting this text. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Every single one of you can memorize that. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. This is the God that we believe in. Our God is one God. This is what the scripture teaches. Let's look at another passage. If you would please turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. As we again see in the teaching of Samuel that there was no other God but the God of the Bible who is one. 2 Samuel This is a prayer recorded here from David, verse 22. For this reason you are great, O Lord, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. There's no God besides God. This is what God taught to the nation of Israel. There is no God besides our God. You realize how important it is as a church to worship this God? Because if you're worshiping another God, you're not worshiping the God of the Bible and therefore you are lost. You know how many people today have other gods even though they think they're worshiping this guy? They have created a God of their imagination. And that's the God they worship. They don't worship the God portrayed in the Bible. They have created an image of what God should be in their own minds, and that's who they worship. We don't do that. We don't want that. We worship this God, the God. There is no other God, not even one you make up. This is the God we listen to. This is the God we go by, the only God. I want to turn you to a passage of Scripture that is one of the most beautiful and elegant passages that describes God, for it is God describing Himself. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah and 44. Isaiah chapter 44. Some of you, have you've been going through your consecutive Bible reading, are in this section or have just read this section in Isaiah chapter 44. Some of you aspiring preachers, there's a lot of good messages right here. Isaiah 44, but we'll pick up please at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am. And the first, and I am the last. This is an I am statement. Does not matter if your Bibles do not capitalize the M, it should be. I am 
the first. And I am the last, the Alpha and the Omega. And there is no God besides me. There's no God besides God. Now look what he goes on to say. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. And let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. There is no God besides me. Or is there any other rock? I know of none. This is God talking about himself. Revealing himself to us. And he says to them, who is like me? Who will you compare to me? From the time that I started my preparation for the pastoral ministry, this text captivated me. One of the very first sermons I ever preached was on the uniqueness of God. God is unique. There is nothing to which we can compare Him. And that's why He revealed Himself to Moses as I am who I am. Because there's nothing else to compare Him to. He can't say I am like, oh, that guy. Or I am like, oh, you remember that other God over there? He's not like anything or anyone else. He is unique in all the universe. I am who I am. There is no one to whom you can compare God. He alone is God. And in this passage, he goes on to say, I am the one who tells you what's going to happen before it comes to pass. Is there anyone else that can do that? Is there any other God out there telling you, well, this is going to happen and this is going to happen and then it happens? There is no other God. Some of you children, some of you new in the faith, listen to your pastor, listen one of the reasons that we know the Bible is true, one of the reasons that we know God is God is because of what He Himself says right here. I'm the God who speaks it before it comes to pass, and then it comes to pass just like I said. And so we have the God who prophesied that a virgin would give birth to a son. And he would call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And hundreds of years later, Mary gives birth to a baby in Bethlehem. And the baby would be born in Bethlehem, Ephrata. There were two Bethlehems, so they were even defining which one. God says it, Long before, and it comes to pass. That's how, at least one of the reasons how, we know that this book is true. 
Because God prophesies, God says, and it came to pass, comes to pass, just as he said. So you can trust it, you can believe it. That's why this man before you rants and raves and makes such a big deal out of believing and following what the Bible says. Because the Bible is true, because God wrote it, God said it, and God is God, and there is no other God. And so we go by what this God says. We go by what this God has given us in the Scriptures. He is God, and there is no other. Look at a little further in this same area, if you would please, to chapter 45. Chapter 45. Oh, I'd like to pick up some others, but we'll pick it up at verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. Who else could have done that? He's the one who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. And there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. This is why we follow the Bible, because it comes from the Lord our God. And there is none beside him. We do not believe that there are three gods. We do not believe that there are many gods. We do not believe that there are other gods. We only believe in this God, the God who is God, the only God, the God of the scriptures. Jehovah God. Now we find that this is even taught in the New Testament and even taught by our Lord Himself. So if you would please turn to the New Testament now, to the Gospel of Mark and chapter 12. Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. What we have in this portion of the scripture that we're going to look at in Mark 12 is all those religious leaders who were threatened by the ministry of our Lord. This is towards the end of his ministry. And he's been going through the land, teaching people to follow the truth and the word of God and not to listen to these lying scribes and Pharisees as they say things that are not right. And many of the people were going after him and not following the religion of the day, not following the Jewish scribes and the teachers. They're following after Jesus and going after what Jesus says. So they got to they figure out some way to stop him. They got to stop this. They got to put an end to this. And so they send some to test him and to try him. Verse 18, and some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection. Sadducees are, were that group of the uh, religious leaders who did not believe 
in life after death. They said there is no resurrection. There's no life after death, and that's why they were sad, you see. Sadducees did not believe in life after death. And believe it or not, many of Jews today are like that. Most of the Jewish people today do not believe in an afterlife. They have followed after the teachings of the Sadducees. But anyway, the Sadducees come to Jesus and they question him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man, a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no children, that his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. And we understand what they're trying to do is trap Jesus. And they go on to say, well, you know, there were seven brothers and they each had the wife and no one had any children. So in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? Which one of the seven brothers? And they were trying to show Jesus, ah, you silly man. There can't possibly be any resurrection. There can't possibly be any life after death. It would be a contradiction of the teaching of the law. That's what they were trying to do. And of course, our Lord Jesus, verse 24, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? What an indictment. What an indictment on so many churches in our day. They do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. Because they don't even use the scriptures half the time. And the power that they think is there is man-made, manipulated. Not the power of God. The power of God changes lives. The power of God makes dead men to live. The power of God brings new life to sinners who become holy and godly men and women. The power of God isn't just seen in people uh, faking healings and falling on the ground or on the floor in the front of a church. The power of God is new life in people's lives. And we have countless churches who deny the scriptures and the teachings of the scriptures. And they don't have the power of God. What an indictment. May it never be said of us. But Jesus says you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. You see, God proves his point by using the words and the tense of the words. I am the God of Abraham, which meant that Abraham had to still be alive. Not I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob. But I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. It is present tense. I still am. Therefore, it shows that they are alive. 
Now I mention that because this is exactly what we saw in Matthew 28, 19, when Jesus said, baptize them in the name. Not in the names. We use even the very tense of the word to understand the doctrine and the teaching of our Lord. There is one name, one God. Now we go on to the scribes as they take their shot at our Lord. Verse 28, one of the scribes came and heard them saying and recognized that he had answered them well and asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now you may think, wow, here's a scribe who was a good guy. Here's a scribe who was a nice guy and and he heard what Jesus said and, and, and Jesus answered them well because the scribes did believe in life after death. They believed in the resurrection. So Jesus beat the, the Sadducees. So now you might think he's a good guy. The fact of the matter is this question that he asked Jesus was a question that was in contention forever. The scribes are always arguing about which was the greatest commandment. And so they were seeking still to catch Jesus, to trap Jesus, to trick him up. And yet here's how Jesus answered. Without hesitation, without batting an eye. The foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord our God is one Lord, one God. Did Jesus believe that? I believe he believed it. The Lord our God is one. He then goes on to say, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. You see, if you do that, you're going to keep the first four commandments. If you love your God, the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, you are not going to have other gods before Him. That's the first commandment. If you love Him supremely, you will not have other gods before Him. If you love Him supremely, you will not make any graven images to any other god. That's the second commandment. If you love God supremely, you're not going to do that. You won't have idols in your home. If you love God supremely, you will not take His name in vain. So common in our day. We were talking about this in the car coming here this morning. Somebody hits their finger with a hammer and what do they do? They take the Lord's name in vain. They take God's name in vain. Why don't they ever use Allah? Or Buddha? Oh, Buddha Dorn! Because our God is God. And it only matters if you take His name in vain. Buddha is not a God. Allah is not a God. They're pagan gods. False. They're nothing. We'll see that in a minute. It's if I hurry up. But Jesus answered the first and foremost, is He, O Israel, Lord, is one. And if you love Him with all your heart, you will also keep His day holy. That was the fourth commandment. 
keep holy the Lord's day. The Sabbath day in the Old Testament, because of the resurrection of Jesus, switched to the first day of the week, but we are still abiding by that command. The Lord's day is set aside for the worship of God and good deeds and godly pursuits. And we believe that that is still true because we love Him with all of our heart, our mind, our soul. And then the next thing he says, And the second, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. If you hold to that second part that he speaks of, you're going to love your mom and dad. You're not going to dishonor them. You're not going to steal. You're not going to kill. You're not going to commit adultery. I don't have them in the right order there, do I? (laughs) But if you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, you're not going to murder. You're not going to commit adultery. You're not going to steal and you're not going to covet. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you'll be glad he has what he has. You'll be glad you have what you have. You won't steal his wife. You won't steal from him. You won't kill him. You won't lie to him. So these are the two commandments Jesus gives. But he precedes that by saying, The Lord our God is one God. And that's our point. We do not worship. We do not have. We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. I want you to start saying that to yourself. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. I want you to look at one other passage before we go this morning. And that deals a little bit with idols. Take your Bibles and look at 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians. And this is where we'll wind up today. 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 2. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Isn't that so true? I can't take the time to open that up. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning eating things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol. See that? You can make a statue all day long, and you can bow down to it, and you can call it your God. It is not. It is a statue, a piece of wood, a piece of metal, a piece of bronze, a piece of gold. It's not a God. It's a figment of your imagination. All idols, all false gods are really just made up by people. They don't even exist except in the minds of their followers. Therefore, concerning eating things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one, our God. There is only one God. This is our point today. This is where we plant our flag. This is where we take our stand. We believe in one God, the God of the Bible. Now, we've only scratched the surface in our study, just presenting this one aspect. In the coming weeks, we're going to open up how this one God reveals Himself even in the same Old Testament. He revealed Himself 
as three persons. But we do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God. First and foremost, the God of the Bible, our God, is one God. Amen? Let's pray.